Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. What a privilege. Let's open the written word of God on 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to be reading verses 2 to 4. And you can find at page 967 on the Pew Bibles. So 2 Corinthians 7, 2 to 4. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. This is the word of the Lord. In the rain, so it's good to have you all here this morning, and good to be worshiping with you. There are going to be a few extra moving parts in the sermon this morning, so I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going. There's going to be an introduction, four principles, and two applications. So if you get lost or you're bored, you can just kind of figure out where you are in that, in that roadmap. Introduction, four principles. Two points of application. I'll try to call them out as we go so you know where we are. But let's get going in the introduction, which is where we are right now. Uh, for the past number of weeks, we've been focusing on these set of verses here, 7, 2 through 4, and the ministry of reconciliation and the theme of open-heartedness. And as I mentioned last week, Paul's fundamental aim in these verses is to get the Corinthians to open their hearts to him. So we can see that right here in uh, 7, 2, make room in your hearts for us, Paul is saying, because he knows that if the Corinthians open their heart to him, then Paul is able to put the gospel seeds inside their heart. But if they close their hearts to him, then he can't minister the gospel to them. So he's wanting them to open their hearts, and he's told them back in 611 that his heart is open to them, and now he's exhorting them to open their hearts to him, and he's been giving them reasons as to why they should open their hearts to him. So in 72, he talks about how his actions towards them have always been above board. And then in 7.3, he assures them that he's not condemning them. And those are the two reasons we looked at last week. And then we get to the middle of verse 4, and that's going to be our primary focus uh, this morning. And Paul offers another reason why the Corinthians should open their hearts to him. It's because he is proud of them. Now, if you've been following along with this sermon series, this might come as a bit of a surprise to you because, as we've seen, the Corinthian church is a bit of a mess. So back when Paul first wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, they've, they've always been a mess. So in 1 Corinthians, he, Paul's letter shows that there were factions amongst them, there were divisions, there was sexual morality of such a, a nature that it was public, even like leaking out inside the church. There were lawsuits among them. 
And so it wasn't going particularly well when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and it's not clear that things are any better when Paul is writing 2 Corinthians either. In fact, the reason that he's writing, the primary reason he's writing, is because some false teachers have come into the church and are preaching a false gospel and are turning the hearts of the Corinthians away from Paul, who is the spiritual father and founder of the Corinthians, and to this false teachers and to these false, this false gospel. But all the same, in the midst of all of that, here is Paul saying that he is proud of the Corinthians. Now, given their behavior, it's perhaps not clear to some of us that Paul should be proud of the Corinthians. In fact, some of us might think quite firmly that it's wrong to be proud of people who are behaving badly. And there's another potentially troubling aspect, I think, of Paul's pride that he's expressing here in verse 4. I've been describing the ministry of reconciliation over the past number of weeks as a sort of golden chain of discipleship. The ministry of reconciliation begins with God the Father, who passes it on to the Son, who passes it on to the apostles, who pass it on to the church, and the church passes it on to the world. And I've been describing the ministry of reconciliation as a golden chain because I've wanted to emphasize that everything that the church has to offer the world in terms of the gospel and the ministry of reconciliation has first come to us from God, from up chain, so to speak. So in what sense, then, is Paul's pride in the Corinthians coming from God? In what sense, if any, is God then proud of us such that we can pass this pride onto others? So I've got three people that this sermon may be useful for, kind of loosely in mind. I've been praying a little bit for you if, you can, if you're one of these three kinds of people. One of the people that I have in mind for this sermon are Christians who think that we really shouldn't honor non-Christians. That's not, the kind of, that's not the right posture towards non-Christians. We shouldn't be honoring non-Christians because non-Christians are sinners. They're cut off from God. They're, they're depraved and corrupt in their sin. And so there's really no honor to give to non-Christians. I'm also thinking about perhaps parents. Parenting is a form of great commission activity. It's part of the ministry of reconciliation. We're making disciples of our children. So I'm thinking about parents who think that they shouldn't be proud of their children when their children are behaving badly. So maybe that's you as a parent. And I'm also thinking about folks who think that God is not proud of us. That's, God loves us, yes, but He's not proud of us. He doesn't honor us. All right, so that's the intro. So now I'm going to offer four quick-ish principles about biblical boasting that will help us understand, I think, Paul's pride of the Corinthians here in verse 4. And then we're going to close out with two points of application. All right, so here's our first principle about biblical boasting. Biblical boasting, true, good, faithful biblical boasting is in the Lord. So in 7.4, Paul says to the Corinthians, I have great pride in you. Now, the term translated as pride here in verse 4 is variously translated throughout the New Testament as boasting or glorying. So some other translations of this verse will read, great is my glorying of you, or great is my boasting on your behalf. 
And there's some subtle nuances between these various translations, but they're all basically saying the same thing because we boast about or we glory in the things that we are proud of. So now boasting or being proud is generally viewed negatively in our culture. But in the Bible, boasting or being proud is not inherently wrong. It's only wrong when we boast or are proud in the wrong things. So in Jeremiah 9, 23, the Lord says to the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. In other words, the Lord is saying to Israel, don't boast or take pride in your own earthly strength or resources. Those are the wrong things to boast in. Boast or take pride in the Lord. So Paul picks up this very passage from Jeremiah, and he uses it in his ministry with the Corinthians. So in his first letter to Corinthians, back in chapter 1, he writes this to the Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, and here he quotes from Jeremiah, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't boast in your worldly accomplishments. Boast about who you are in the Lord. And that's what Paul is doing in 7.4 when he's boasting about the Corinthians or he's proud of the Corinthians. He's boasting or taking pride in the Corinthians in the Lord. I think we can see this even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. So in his first letter, Paul says this to the Corinthians there as well. And as he's closing off his letter in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's boasting or pride in the Corinthians is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a biblical boasting. And he says the same basic thing to the church in Thessalonica. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he writes, For what is my hope or joy or crown of boasting? It could be translated crown of pride in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? Paul's congregations are his hope, his joy, his crown of boasting, his crown of pride in the Lord. So our first principle about biblical boasting is that biblical boasting is in the Lord, but I think we need to fill that out a bit more. So that leads to the second principle. Biblical boasting looks to the future. So Paul knows that the Corinthians' truest self, that our very realest self, is not who we are in our natural state, nor is it who we are in our current state. Our truest self is who we will be in Christ when Christ appears in glory 
and we are glorified in Him. So Paul says in Colossians 3, 3, he says, Our life at present is currently hidden with Christ in God. The truest me that exists, the truest you that exists, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with Him in glory. And so Paul's confidence is in that future reality that he looks into the Corinthians' lives. And it's that, that, that reality, that future reality that is enabling him to boast about the Corinthians. So as an illustration, think about a child learning to walk. When a child is first learning to walk, the child toddles and tumbles and falls down a lot. But despite all the trips up, trip ups and the falls, parents are so proud. They're so boastful about their child's performance. I love this about Pastor Greg. He's in Ethiopia, so I can talk about him this morning. I would talk about him even if he was not in Ethiopia. But, but he just, he's so proud of his daughter, Stevie. And so he comes into the, he comes into the staff meeting. He's like, have you seen my daughter? You, she can walk, you know. Or, I mean, it's just amazing how proud he is. I was out to lunch with another friend. His daughter is three months old, and he's showing me pictures of her. And he's like, look how she knows how to look right at the camera. She's so smart. I'm like, I don't know that she knows how to look right at the camera. But parents are so boastful and proud of their children when their children are learning to take their first steps, right? And they're so boastful and proud about their children, not just because of their child's ability in that moment. They are boasting about their child in light of the future, in light of what the child is becoming. It's precisely because parents look at their toddlers with future eyes, that they are so proud of their children in the present, even if their children fall down and trip and take faltering steps. And what's true of earthly, earthly parenting is true of spiritual parenting. So Paul is the spiritual parent, the spiritual father of the Corinthians. And he's boasting about the Corinthians and he's looking beyond the Corinthians' present condition to their final state in the Lord. So with the eyes of faith, he's not seeing them merely for who they are, for what they are in that moment, but for who they will become. And it's not that he's ignoring their present failures. So he chastises, he corrects them as needed. We've been seeing that all throughout 2 Corinthians. But he's confident that if Jesus has laid hold of them, then they are destined for an eternal weight of glory, as he says earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so his fundamental posture towards the Corinthians is one of pride, about who they are and who they are becoming in the Lord. All right, so biblical boasting is in the Lord. Biblical boasting looks to the future. Third, biblical boasting is based on who we are, not what we do. So going all the way back into Genesis chapter 1, in 1, 26 and 27, we read that humanity was made in God's image, which means that we have been made in some way to be like God. And our creation in the image of God is what gives humanity our dignity and our honor with respect to the rest of the creation. So in that creation narrative, humanity is, is singled out as uniquely worthy of dignity and honor because humanity exists in the image of God. No other creatures are made in the image of God. But in Genesis 3, the story unravels. Humanity rebels against God, 
and everything goes sideways, and we become ruined, and we become guilty. So we might think that humanity's dignity and honor are being like God was also swept away in Genesis 3. But it wasn't. Because as Genesis unfolds and we get to chapter 9 after the devastation of the flood, God reaffirms that humanity still bears His image. And that because humanity still bears His image, human beings need to treat each other with dignity and respect. And what that reveals is that our sinful actions do not destroy our inherent dignity. That's because our inherent dignity and honor is not based on what we do, but on who we are as those made in the image of God. So again, for another illustration, think about a golden ring. Golden rings are not pure gold. But when we say that a gold ring is not pure gold, we're not saying that the gold of the ring is impure. We're saying that the ring is impure because gold is an element. So you think back to your chemistry class in high school. Gold is an element, as, and as an element, it can't be impure. The impurities of the other metals in the ring don't make the gold of the ring any less truly gold. They just make the ring less pure. In the same way God created human beings as pure untainted rings of gold. And in our foolishness and sin, we've mixed all sorts of other impurities into these rings of gold that are our soul. And sometimes we mix so much in to such an extent that we can barely see the gold that's inherently there. But all of those impurities of sin can't destroy the gold that still exists in the human soul because the gold of the human soul is the image of God. So here's the remarkable thing about the Christian idea of human dignity and respect. True for all people. Not just true for Christians, but true for all people. In the Christian framework, we don't earn our honor and dignity by honorable and dignified actions. We are created with honor and dignity. Humans come out of the womb with honor and dignity because it's a gift given to us by God. So biblical boasting is most fundamentally based on who people are, whether that's who they are as those made in the image of God, which is all of us, or those who are being made new in Christ, which are Christians. It's not fundamentally based on what people do. So biblical boasting is in the Lord. Biblical boasting looks to the future. Biblical boasting is based on who we are, not what we do. And finally, biblical boasting helps to bring about the reality in which it boasts. All right, now I think, Amy, I've forgotten my book. Could you bring me my book that I left over there? Thank you so much. It's a close call. Well done. I'm so proud of you. That was fantastic. Um, Very often, all right, very often when we freely ascribe dignity and honor to others, The Holy Spirit takes up our honorific actions and words and He uses the honor that we bestow on others to make others honorable. So I want to have another illustration. This comes from a book written by Brennan Manning. And uh, he tells the story of a, 
of a student he met on campus. And so Brendan Manning was a, a campus pastor, and uh, this was one of the students that he met. This young man named Larry was not a Christian, but let me tell the story here as uh, Brendan tells it. Back in the late 1960s, I was teaching at a university in Ohio, and there was a student on campus who by society's standards would have been called ugly. He was short, extremely obese, he had a terrible case of acne, a bad lisp, and his hair was growing like Lancelot's horse, four directions at one time. In all my days, I have never met anybody with such low self-esteem. Of course, no campus girl would date him and no fraternity wanted him as a pledge. The story I'm about to tell you is what Larry got for Christmas one year. Larry came along, or Christmas came along for Larry Mullaney, and he found himself back with his parents in Providence, Rhode Island. Larry's father is a typical lace curtain Irishman. Now, there are lace curtain Irish and there are shanty Irish. A lace curtain Irishman, even on the hottest day in summer, will not come to the dining room table without wearing a suit, usually a dark pinstripe, stretched white shirt, and a tie swollen at the top. He will never allow his sideburns to grow to the top of his ears, and he always speaks in a low, subdued voice. When Larry comes to the dinner table that first night home, smelling like a billy goat, he and his father have the usual number of quarrels and reconciliations. And thus begins a typical vacation in the Mullaney household. Several nights later, Larry tells his father he's got to get back to school the next day. What time, son? Six o'clock, Larry says. Well, I'll ride the bus with you. So the next morning, the father and son ride the bus in silence. They get off the bus as Larry has to catch a second one to get to the airport. Directly across the street are six men standing under an awning, all men who work in the same textile factory as Larry's father. And they begin making loud and degrading remarks like, oink, oink, look at that fat pig. I tell you, if that pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. And another said, I wouldn't. If that slob was my kid, he'd be out the back door so fast he wouldn't know if he's on foot or horseback. Hey, pig, give us your best oink. And these brutal salvos continued. Larry Mullaney told me that in that moment, for the first time in his life, his father reached out and embraced him kissed him on the lips, and said, Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, that wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift he gave us in you. I'm so proud that you're my son. It would be hard to describe in words the transformation that took place in Larry Mullaney. He came back to school and remained a hippie, but he cleaned up the best he could. And miracles of miracles, Larry began dating a girl, and to top it off, he became the president of one of the fraternities. He was the first student in the history of our university to graduate with a 4.2 grade point average. Larry came to my office one day and said, tell me about this man, Jesus. And for the next six weeks in half-hour increments, I shared with Larry what the Holy Spirit had revealed to me about Jesus. And at the end of those six weeks, Larry said, okay. And in June of 1974, Larry Mullaney was ordained a priest in the Diocese of Providence, Rhode Island. And for the past 20 years, he's been a missionary in South America a man totally sold out to Jesus Christ. And do you know why? It wasn't because of the six weeks of sitting in my office while I talked about Jesus. No, it was because of a day long ago during a Christmas vacation, standing at a bus stop, when his lace curtain Irish father healed him. His father looked deeply into his son's eyes, saw the good in Larry Mullaney that Larry couldn't see for himself, affirmed him with a furious love, and changed the whole direction of his son's life. And what Larry's father did for him 
is what Paul is doing for the Corinthians. The Corinthians are Paul's spiritual children. And that's reason enough for him to love them and to be proud of them. And Paul recognizes the inherent goodness in them. He sees them through the eyes of faith. And he's treating them as they will be one day in glory. And his honoring actions towards the Corinthians are the very means by which God is making the Corinthians honorable. All right, so now those are the four principles. Let's get to our two points of application. I want to relate these four principles and Paul's pride of the Corinthians to the ministry of reconciliation. The past number of weeks, I've talked about holding in your mind a couple of relationships, perhaps a relationship with a non-Christian, a relationship with a Christian, people that you feel like the Lord is calling you to serve as a minister of reconciliation in their life, someone that you were called to perhaps be a disciple maker of. So bring those two people to mind, but let's start with the non-Christian first. It's essential that ministers of reconciliation remember the inherent dignity and honor that God has placed in the soul of every single human being. In this age, in the age of Christ's first coming, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world or to make the world ashamed. God sent the Son into the world to call us back to Himself, to reveal His love for us, to remind us of who we were made to be. So part of the job of the ministers of reconciliation is to remind the world of their inherent God-given dignity and honor. The world is hungry for honor and dignity because the world was created for honor and dignity just as much as we are. But the world, the people of the world, have lost sight of the God in whose image they've been made and they don't know how to find their honor and dignity. And so they try to find it in all sorts of worldly things. They try to find their pride, their boasting in their work or their achievements, or their marriage, or their family, or their wealth, or their athleticism, or their beauty. And all those false sources of honor and dignity eventually wither and die with time. And when those earthly sources of honor die, as they all do, they invariably leave people with a sense of meaninglessness and hopelessness. So how many young men have striven with all their might to find their honor in their careers only having had a successful career to still feel empty and unfulfilled? And how many young women have striven with all their might to find their honor in their beauty only to feel in the end still empty and spent? Because there is no lasting honor in earthly things. This is one of the themes that has been woven throughout all of 2 Corinthians that Paul is trying to help the Corinthians understand. But the true lasting glory, the true lasting honor, the true lasting pride is found in the face of Jesus. It's in the eternal glory that God bestows that we have eternal glory. So the world has forgotten where their honor is. But you and I, dear Christian, we know where their true honor lies. Their truest honor lies in the fact that they too have been made in the image of God. That they too, just like us, 
have worth and dignity and honor independent of their worldly or earthly accomplishments. And it's our job as ministers of the gospel to remind them, to tell them of this truth. So yes, we do need to speak of sin and of the impurities that spoil the ring that God has made. But if we speak of the world's innate sinfulness without speaking of its innate honor, we're only speaking half of the gospel message. Our role as ministers of reconciliation is to draw attention to the life of God by which all people live, to remind people of the image of God that they still bear, to exhort them to repent of their false quests for honor and to call them to live consciously and fully into the honor that God freely and fully grants to all human beings and restores fully in Christ. So the message of the church to the world is not, you are a worthless sinner, you must repent. The message of the church to the world is, you have been created with dignity and honor. Repent of trying to find your honor and dignity in earthly things that will always fade with time. Jesus, he never shamed his disciples. And Paul never shamed his churches. Paul chastised his churches. Jesus rebuked his disciples. They exhorted their followers, but never shamed them. It's not our place to shame the world. Listen, the non-Christian world will never open their hearts to our message if we shame them. Shame closes hearts, but honor and dignity, love, opens hearts. So as you think about your interactions with your non-Christian friend, think about how you can treat them with dignity and honor and remind them of what they themselves don't even know, that they have inherent honor and dignity not through their actions and their accomplishments, but because who they are as one made in the image of God. All right, now think about that relationship you have with a Christian that you're in a position to be a discipler with. That might be a child, perhaps a spouse, a friend, a neighbor. Part of your job as a disciple maker in their life is to believe the best for them, especially when they can't believe the best for themselves. How can people, the people in our life, see the Lord in us if we can't see the Lord in them? This is especially true, I think, with parenting. Because our kids will not have more faith in themselves than we as parents have in them. If you despair of your son, if you're ashamed of your son, it's no wonder that your son despairs and is ashamed of himself. And if you can't see a Christ-filled future for your daughter, it's no wonder she can't see a Christ-filled future for herself. Our faith in our children is not our faith in our children. Our faith in our children is our faith in the Lord in our children. So when Paul says in Colossians 1.27 that it is Christ in us who is our hope of glory, it is Christ in our children that is their hope of glory. So we don't need to be overwhelmed by all their stumblings and their trip-ups and all the things that they do wrong and the mistakes that they make. 
Their glory, their hope, our hope for them is in Christ, who is their glory. And this is true for all discipleship, not just for parenting. When you consider the person you're discipling, don't consider them as they are, but as they are and will be in Christ. And then honor them accordingly. Not because of what they've done, but simply because of who they are as a child of God. It's not our place as ministers of the gospel to be ashamed of the people that God has given us to disciple. Our job as Great Commission ministers, whether it's with our children, our friends, a pastor with this congregation, is to look into the future of the people that we are discipling and to see in them what we know that they will become glorified in Christ, even in the midst of their stumbling, and to treat them accordingly. All right, let me close with this thought, and maybe this is the most important thought, because our work and premise, as I've said at the beginning, about the golden chain of discipleship, is that Paul isn't giving anything to the Corinthians that God hasn't first given to him. So if Paul is taking pride in the Corinthians when they don't seem to deserve it, he must have learned that from somewhere up above him. And he has. When Jesus was baptized at the very start of his ministry, he was not baptized for his own sins, nor was he baptized because he himself needed to be converted. His baptism was a sign of our baptism such that when we, His people, are baptized into Him, we can look at Jesus' baptism and understand our own. And at Jesus' baptism, when He came up out of the water, do you remember what happened? The heavens opened up and the dove, the Holy Spirit came down as a dove, and then the Father's voice loudly and proudly proclaimed, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus had done a single thing in his public ministry, before he performed his first public miracle or preached his first sermon, the Father spoke a word of honor and love over him. The Father loves and honors the Son simply because the Son is his Son. And that divine word spoken over the Son is the same divine word that God speaks over all of His children at our baptisms. When you came up out of the water, the Father said, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Before you took your first step, before you performed your first work of love, God proudly and publicly owned you as his child. He was not ashamed to call you his child in whom he was well pleased. And our whole sense of identity needs to start and then end in that spot. God bestows honor upon us as a free gift. God doesn't ask us to give something to the world that he hasn't first given to us. We have honor because of who God says we are as his children. And it's his honoring of us that makes us honorable. We become, throughout our Christian life, 
what he has declared us to be at our baptism. God loves us and he honors us at the beginning of our life. And his love and honor creates in us a life of love and honor. And that's what we pass on to the world around us. Freely given to us, we freely give it to others. We're going to sing to remind ourselves of who God says we are. And then we're going to come to the table in just a moment. But let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you that we have this true word in our baptism, seen in the baptism of Christ, that you love us, we are your children, and that you are well pleased with us. And God, we thank you that we have inherent dignity and honor, not because of the things that we do or the ways that we strive to accomplish, or but simply as your children, as those created in your image. God, and I pray that you would help us to embrace that, and then in our embrace of that, give that freely to others. We pray this in your Son's name.